Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Sunday, July 25th episode of Poets and Muses, where we chat with poets about their inspirations. I'm your host, Imogen A-Rate. You can find us at poetsandmuses.com, as well as on Instagram and Twitter under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter at poetsandmuses.com. Now, in addition to the Poets and Muses website and SoundCloud page, you can also listen to the Poets and Muses podcast on your preferred podcast platforms. Since December of 2018, we have featured over 120 poets from 13 countries on five continents, and we hope to continue to do that with your support. And you can support us by going to poetsandmuses.com forward slash donate and donate either via PayPal or you prefer credit cards. With us today is Margaret Newton, with whom we will be discussing her poem, Nababian Agude, Tracing Balance, and my poem, Balance. Before we do that, however, I am going to go over some virtual poetry events taking place during the week of July 26th. On Monday, July 26th, from 8 p.m. Central Daylight Time, Frizzy Productions will be hosting his Poets Playground Playing Clean open mic via Instagram Live at poets underscore playground underscore. Again, that's poets underscore playground underscore. From 7 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time, the Los Angeles Poets Society will be hosting the Loop Writing Workshop with Carol Scott. You can find out more information at Los Angeles Poets Society on Instagram. Again, that's at Los Angeles Poets Society on Instagram. On Tuesday, July 27th, from 3 to 5 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, Urban World NYC will be hosting their first draft open mic for those between the ages of 13 and 23. It's a virtual writing workshop and open mic series facilitated by Roya Marsh. You can find out more information at urbanwordnyc.org forward slash first draft. From 3 to 5 p.m. Mountain Daylight Time, Lighthouse Writers Workshop will be hosting their Hard Times Denver Writing Workshop. You can find out more information at lighthousewriters.org forward slash workshops. Again, that's at lighthousewriters.org forward slash workshops. From 7 to 8.30 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, White Whale Bookstore will be hosting their Hemingway's 2021 Summer Poetry Series Week 7 with John Gorchowski, Yona Harvey, Emily Monslate, William Taylor Jr., and Lori Wilson. You can find out more information at whitewhalebookstore.com forward slash events. Again, that's at whitewhalebookstore.com forward slash events. From 7 to 8.30 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, Wayne State University Press will be hosting their Skaza remote poetry series featuring Allison Swan. You can find out more information at wsupress.wayne.edu forward slash news hyphen events forward slash events. Again, that's at wsupress.wayne.edu forward slash news hyphen events, forward slash events. From 8 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, the Writers' Center will be hosting their curated conversations, Carida Moro Gronlier with Richard Blanco. You can find out more information at writer.org, forward slash reading hyphen events. 
Again, that's at writer.org forward slash reading hyphen events. From 9 p.m. Central Daylight Time, Frizzy Productions will be hosting his Poets Playground playing dirty open mic via Instagram Live at poets underscore playground underscore. Again, that's at poets underscore playground underscore. On Wednesday, July 28th, from 3 to 5 p.m. Mountain Daylight Time, Lighthouse Writers Workshop will be hosting their Hard Times Arvada Writing Workshop. You can find out more information at lighthousewriters.org forward slash workshops. Again, that's at lighthousewriters.org forward slash workshops. From 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, Do More Baltimore will be hosting their World Tour Poetry Club. You can find out more information at domorebaltimore.org forward slash workshops events. Again, that's at domorebaltimore.org forward slash workshops events. From 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, the Writers' Center will be hosting their virtual craft chat with poet Carlina Duan. You can find out more information at writer.org forward slash reading hyphen events. Again, that's at writer.org forward slash reading hyphen events. From 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, Mark Fishbein will be hosting his Planet Poetry 28. You can find out more information and register at poetwithguitar.com forward slash events. Again, that's at poetwithguitar.com forward slash events. From 5 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time, Los Angeles Poets Society will be hosting their Voices of Color with Chris Wilson, this time featuring Hiram Sims. You can find out more information at Los Angeles Poets Society on Instagram. Again, that's at Los Angeles Poets Society on Instagram. From 8 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time, Beyond Baroque Literary Arts will be hosting their poetry workshop with Louis Vet Resto. You can find out more information and register at beyondbaroque.org forward slash free underscore workshops html. Again, that's at beyondbaroque.org forward slash free underscore workshops html. On Thursday, July 29th, from 7 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, City of Asylum will be hosting their Echo Justice for All, reading with Camille T. Dungy and conversation with Celeste Ganey. You can find out more information at cityofasylum.org. Again, that's at cityofasylum.org. From 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, the Writer Center will be hosting their Split Infinitive, four writers on Star Trek panel with Toby Fularen, Zach Powers, Gwendolyn Sullivan, and Gail Marie Thompson. You can find out more information at writer.org forward slash reading hyphen events. Again, that's writer.org forward slash reading hyphen events. From 7 to 8.30 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, White Whale Bookstore will be hosting their virtual poetry reading with Catherine Pond, Diana Coy Nguyen, and Alexandria Hall. You can find out more information at whitewhalebookstore.com forward slash events. Again, that's at whitewhalebookstore.com forward slash events. From 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, Nuijanan TV will be hosting their Nuijanan Scott Talon with CJ Gritz, which showcases indigenous youths between 13 and 25. This will be happening via Instagram Live. You can find out more information and RSVP at Nuijanan TV. That's N-W-E-J-I-N-A-N-T-V. Again, that's N-W-E-J-I-N-A-N-T-V. 
From 7 to 9 p.m. Central Daylight Time, Shu R Speaks will be hosting the Reverb Open Mic, hosted by Lieutenant Suni. You can find out more information and register at truerspeaks.org forward slash events. Again, that's at truerspeaks.org forward slash events. From 8 to 10 p.m. Central Daylight Time, the South Dakota State Poetry Society will be hosting the Electronic Poetry Garden. You can find out more information at artssouthdakota.org forward slash event. Again, that's at artssouthdakota.org forward slash event. On Friday, July 30th, from 11 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. British time, Poetry LGBT will be hosting their Speaker Truth Writing Workshop. You can find out more information by messaging the host Andrina Leanne at survivor.andrina.leanne on Instagram. That's survivor.andrina.leanne. Andrina is spelled A-N-D-R-E-E-N-A, and Leanne is spelled L-E-E-A-N-N-E. From 10 a.m. Mountain Daylight Time, First Peoples Fund will be hosting their Oglala Lakota Art Space Virtual Open House with Laylee Long Soldier. You can find out more information at facebook.com forward slash events forward slash 104-914-974-228-6292. Again, that's at facebook.com forward slash events forward slash 104-914-974-228-6292. From 7 p.m. West Africa time, Graciano and Worm and Nopal Flower will be hosting the Corona versus Open Mic via Instagram Live at Graciano and Worm. That's G-R-A-C-I-A-N-O-E-N-W-E-R-E-M. Again, that's G-R-A- C-I-A-N-O-E-N-W-E-R-E-M. From 7 to 9 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time, Voces de Nuestra Gente will be hosting their open mic featuring Georgina Marie and Josea Luis Alderete. You can find out more information at mcanas62 on Instagram. Again, that's at M-C-A-N-A-S-62 on Instagram. 62 is the number 62. On Saturday, July 31st, from 8 to 9.30 p.m. Indian Standard Time, our past poet guest Umesh Mohikar will be hosting his Let's Unmesh Life open mic. You can find out more information at Let's Unmesh Life on Instagram. Again, that's at Let's Unmesh Life on Instagram. On Sunday, August 1st, from 5 to 7 p.m. British time, Poetry LGBT will be hosting their monthly open mic. You can find out more information at Poetry LGBT on Instagram. Again, that's at Poetry LGBT on Instagram. From 7 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, Keep the Mic On will be hosting their weekly poetry event. You can find out more information at keepthemicon.com. Again, that's at keepthemicon.com. And now let us welcome our Poet Guest of the Week, Margaret Newton. Hi, Margaret. Thank you very much for coming on to Poets and Muses. Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah, I really appreciate taking the time to talk with me. You brought with you your poem, 
Nave Bian Agudek, Tracing Balance. Before we get into that, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about yourself. I teach at the University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee. Mm -hmm. I teach Anishinaabe language. Mm -hmm. Probably the thing people might notice about me first as a teacher and someone who does an indigenous language, people don't expect that we're still using our language. Mm -hmm. um, so it's very nice to have students still speaking the language of the Great Lakes area. Mm -hmm. I'm originally from Minnesota up here in Minneapolis and then taught for a time in Michigan as well. So I've always been around the Great Lakes as a writer and a poet. Mm -hmm. And I've been trying to do justice to what I know my ancestors before me saw and enjoyed and how much of that still connect to. Great. That's wonderful. I was wondering, when did you come to write poetry? I would say I've written poetry most of my life. I think as a young child, there were a lot of reasons to notice the world and listen to the world and try and have a conversation with it. And my parents were both teachers, so they encouraged me to write the thoughts down. And I think to me, very early, it occurred that these were like little poems. And it was something that if you had asked me as a very young child, what do you want to do grow up? Would they write poetry or write books? I realized at a certain point that one can't necessarily live off of doing that, but mm -hmm. I think that many of us find ways to bring poetry into our regular lives. For a while I was in marketing and finance, and I still wrote poems then, and mm. now I, I teach at a university, and a lot of the times I'm doing things that are not necessarily focused on writing poetry in the moment, but I'm able to construct a life where I have opportunities to write poems on a regular basis, which I think for me is one of the ways I find balance relate, I guess, to our topic today. Right, right. This is interesting because, you know, as, as you know, a lot of poets realize that despite their love for poetry and our shared love for poetry is not necessarily a life-sustaining career. So that's why the poets I've interviewed tend to come from all sorts of backgrounds. I think you're probably one of the luckier ones where you do get to teach something that's close to what you do as a writer um, or, or at least that's the impression uh, I have because you don't just teach the language right you also teach writing in the language. I do I get to teach writing in Anishinaabe one so I have a third year course that is about writing using the language so often we learn language other than the one we are speaking at home most often and learn how to travel to other places, how to speak to people that we don't know and use the language to communicate with them. But we rarely think about how to express ourselves with those languages. So it's been a nice capstone for me with students who have taken the language a couple of years to help them express themselves in an artistic way in a language. It's certainly mm -hmm. not what I was able to do when I took French, say, in high school and then in college to graduate to just read or other stuff. So adding a creative writing composition element to studying language has been really rewarding. I'm lucky enough to teach in an English department that has three native literary scholars. So there's myself and Michael Wilson and Kimberly Blazer. And Kimberly was Wisconsin State Poet Laureate for a while, two years. Mm -hmm. 
years, mm-hmm. and she teaches creative writing. So I think it's interesting to think about all the ways that people teach. I focus on teaching in an Anishinaabe one, but she often teaches poetry writing in English. Okay, okay. Wow, that's, that's wonderful. I, I think even though there are plenty of indigenous peoples throughout the U.S. And there are many people who do speak their indigenous languages. The fact is, many are endangered. And I don't know if Isnabi is one of the endangered languages. So it's nice to, I imagine, for you to be working with two other colleagues who are also indigenous scholars, because usually, uh, I think, probably every a department might just have one and it can be an isolating experience because since you write in the language as well you can't really bounce ideas off of each other so i I wonder what that feels like yeah exactly i think that there is that i only have one other person in the city of milwaukee that i can sit and speak anishinaabe when with uh, for an extended amount of time there is an elementary school in milwaukee where students learn to hear. Are you a native speaker of the language or, or is this something that you learn later on? No, I got to learn it later. So in my family, it would be five generations since anyone actually spoke the language as their first language at home. Wow. And as a linguist, one of the ways we define the living language is a language that is used at home between two generations. Mm-hmm. That's a bar. You have languages where someone might be learning it and revitalizing the language, get quite good, write in the language, but there isn't any community use or there isn't any use at home. And really to not have creative use in homes across multiple generations, it just means that you have an isolated user and when they're done using it, it won't be continuing. So to know that a language will continue, you really have to have some strong systems of support. I grew up in Minnesota where there were, as I was growing up, a lot of ways to hear the language, funerals, mm-hmm. other gatherings, celebrations, ceremonies. There were often people speaking the language, but in the 70s and 80s, people just thought it would always be there. Those elders that knew it would somehow always be using it. It was fairly abrupt. The boarding school system wiped out young people's use of it. So right. we moved into the 90s, and as we lose the those elders, then we, we stopped having the language available. So I learned it in college, is when I first started thinking of it as something I could read and write and possibly learn well enough to teach others. Wow. So it's it's great that, that you did end up teaching it um, and, and extending the life of the language and hopefully transmit it to future generations as well. Going 
Back to the uh, boarding school that you touched on a little bit, it's something that I'm familiar with in terms of Canada because they talk about it openly, whereas in the U.S. we don't really talk about it. It's not common knowledge. So I was really taken aback when I found out that the, there was boarding school here as well that punished the indigenous uh, children for dressing, for acting, for speaking their languages for expressing their culture in any way. One of the things I'm really bad at is dates. Um, do you happen to know for this Great Lakes region, like until when boarding school was still in effect? Well, you know, in the North American continent, you had, this is a vast oversimplification, but it's, it's an interesting comparison. You had people who were colonizing, and in parts of North America, came from Spain and felt they were discovering land that would be New Spain and in parts of North America you had people coming and discovering land that they felt would be New France and right. then you had the British come and all of that settled out and really after the War of 1812 which occurred in and around the Great Lakes that was really a time that Native culture and identity was suppressed for the Great Lakes region mm. and the French receded, you end up still having a little bit in, in Montreal, which is now part of Canada. But the idea that there was a diaspora of Anishinaabe nations and the French traders and other folks coming and going, for a while there was a time where if you were in the Great Lakes, you would see some co-equal things happening. Mm -hmm. But there were still a lot of missionaries, very, very early. So all the way from, you know, the 1600s forward, you had thinking they needed to assimilate the people they encountered here. Right. And that sense of trying to assimilate people and considering them less than the European traditions or having languages and cultures less than the European traditions continued all the way into really the boarding, some of the boarding schools did not close until the 1980s. And in the United States, it wasn't until the Native Languages Act, which happened in 1990, that it was finally legal for um, indigenous languages to be spoken. So you had a, a very systemic way of repressing language and culture all the way really up to about the you know, 1990s. And then at that point, it's very, very hard to roll back the hands of time and undo what has been done. You have to really, that's what I guess reconciliation is all about. You have to start where you're at to move forward and negotiate a new reality together because you can't go back and undo what happened. Right, right. I don't know how much of a reconciliation process we are in the process of putting in place in this country. In the United States, I would say it's not very much right. at all. I think that in the recent wake of the Black Lives Matter, Movement mm -hmm. and Catholic George Floyd's passing, which is so unfortunate, but yet another of so many men and women who went before him. Um, when you look at political movements in the United States, the indigenous history is one that really involves a lot of thought. I mean, it's very easy for most people to say slavery was wrong and it's had an impact find a way to get past that. 
But I think it's harder for people to understand what the reality was in terms of how all the land was claimed and the genocide, and physical genocide and cultural genocide that occurred. So people take down Columbus statues, but that's not necessarily going to change much. People can change football team names, but until they really start thinking hard about the history and trying to hear the languages and see through the lens of the cultures that were here, and many of them, you know, we are still here, I don't think we will get as far as we need to. Yeah, and that makes sense. And as you said, um, the changing names of football teams or taking down statues, I, I feel like obviously they do need to be celebrated. At the same time, the fact that it's such a big deal that those things happen tells us how low the standards are. And I think, yeah. and, and I think that's incredibly sad for us as a um, so-called a diverse nation as, it, well, the U.S. as a diverse nation in terms of how it, the idealism based upon which it's founded. It, I don't. I don't think you know the idealism is somewhere far out of our reach. Still, you know, obviously we hope we hope to get there. At the same time, for different reasons, right? Because there are economic, political, uh, and also land use reasons where people might not sign on to fully recognizing all the atrocities committed against indigenous nations. Because what is reparation look like in that respect when we are basically living on somebody else's land there's a lot of intersectionality of issues at hand that um, might serve as hurdles uh, for people to fully recognize what needs to be done to restore justice for the centuries of atrocities that's been committed but that is a can of worms that well we, we opened it but we need to close a little bit because we're here to talk about poetry and specifically your poem. So as an awkward transition, I was wondering if you would mind reading your poem for us now and then we can talk about it. I will often read my poems in Anishinaabe when first, so people can just hear the language because I write them in Anishinaabe when first. And I am often playing with patterns of sound that can't replicate when you translate to get the correct meaning in English. Mm -hmm. So I'll read it in Anishinaabe and then I'll read it in English. Yeah, please. Nabibiyan agude. Omada adum sikwan mazana egan. Anamai bashta bekishigan. Gaye afane jibikisisan. Basangwabinit. Ni abit ningide ni bina. Onabibiyan. Singinagadene, Zive, Jawai, Endaje, Bashta, Big One, Nibana, and Ande, Mamangwen, and Chikinawana, Wawa, Gitgeweyanka, Ima, Epichi, Mamwe, Bemarzaji, Abuzikan, Dizowat, Abuatesewat, Gaye, Waseazewat, Nikama, Agude. Tracing balance. She follows the map of spring under the sky's one bursting eye and the ever blinking moon into the melt of summer. He traces the pouring river through blossoms bursting, multicolored equations winding in 
into the woods. There, while society turns itself inside out, the shadow and the shine find balance. Thank you. I wasn't sure if this is one of the ones where, you know, just reading it, if you would be seeing, because the last time I heard you read a number of your poems, you had sang most of them. So I was wondering what the difference is and which ones you choose to, or what decision you make in terms of which ones to sing out and which ones to read. I think some poems just start with a more lyric subject. So the poem about the chickadees, I really was trying to think of the poetry they are making when they have their call at the end of the day and they sing out their sense of bird meaning. Mm-hmm. And there's another one about fish. Uh, there's another one that I do really kind of remembering the way friends of mine exchanged gifts. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it is the action or the subject matter of the original poem that will make me think, this one just has to have a different rhythm, a different pace, and it kind of comes out more like a song. This one in particular, the balance of it, it is balancing this careful, almost more quiet way. Mm-hmm. So it just felt as more of a spoken poem. Mm-hmm. In terms of the subject matter, I was wondering what made you decide to write this uh, particular poem. So this particular poem is about ways of seeing in the world that require you to stretch your understanding of a person or a place or an event. And balance is often seen as two things being as equal as possible. But I wanted to think about balance as two things being very different Mm -hmm. and yet holding space with one another and having respect and looking at the same thing together but acknowledging their differences. Mm -hmm. I think it's really interesting in terms of just talking about balance of how balance can be possible depending on the natures of however many elements um, in terms of balancing something, because it doesn't necessarily have to be two. And so I thought it was interesting because I only can understand the English version. The way that you presented this, both the feminine and the masculine dichotomy and the nature dichotomy between the moon and the river, so what's in the sky and what's on earth. So I was interested to find out why you decided to use, well, first the male and the female, and then also the sky and the earth imagery. I think the male and the female, because in Anishinaabe, when we don't have male or female third person pronouns, Mm -hmm. so we don't ever have to choose, do I say he, she, they, we just use the third person. It just means whoever you're speaking to, it's not the speaker, it's not the listener, it's someone else. Mm. And it really is a relational mm. marker more than anything else. And if you want to speak of someone's gender, it would be considered unusual in most sentences, in most conversations, to need to specify anyone's actual gender. Gender is a thing that comes up when you're talking about 
the next generation and there might be women who give birth and there might be men who are a part of that in a certain way, but it's very focused on genders coming together to produce a next generation. And there's a lot of variation in how people do that. So there might be people who identify as a gender differently than the one that they were born with, or there might be people who take on a role of nurturing after a child is born, and you might have a household of two people of the same gender who mm -hmm. are raising children. So there's, I think, a different way of viewing gender. The gender isn't a lens that everything can see through, and I, I wanted to think about how that really is very subjective, because mm -hmm. in indigenous languages and indigenous traditions, there are some stories where the sun is male, and there are a few where the sun and the energy of the sun are thought of as female. Mm. The same for the moon. There are some instances where both the sun and the moon are male, and they are male bodies in the sky, and in some cases, the moon is female. Mm. So all of the ways that people marry the world around us, and when they do decide to have gender, I think are very so in this case, I was really just trying to say, have multiple ways of moving through the world. And we might think of the sun and the moon, but those vary. And each person will often have very male characteristics and female characteristics. So this she in the first stanza could be the same as the he in the next stanza. It's not necessarily a different person. Mm. Um, that's really, I guess, what I was trying to convey is the, the openness of some of those definitions. Okay. So then, given what you just told us about the Ishnabi when the way that it characterizes the third person, I imagine that in the original version, both the start of or the, the stanza's third person is basically just gender neutral. Gender neutral or, I don't know what the term would be, would it be super neutral, <laughs> like it would be, it, it combines them both. <laughs> right, right. So it's almost like you have the recognition that you could rely on both. Right. Your feminine ways of viewing the world, your male ways of being in the world, and that might be how and move forward and actually follow a particular path or navigate between dark and light. Right, right. So maybe it's just omni-gender? Yeah, that's a good term. I like that term. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I, I really wish I understood the language because there are just nuances that are almost impossible to explain from one language to, to another, just as you said before, because I'm, I'm also a multilingual speaker, so um, it is very difficult sometimes to express oneself in the dominant language that one is speaking with uh, in conversation with, uh, you know, in, in a certain conversation. Do you have the tendency of just uh, always writing in Ishnabe one first, or do you sometimes switch? I do now. I think that when I received my MFA, I was somewhat discouraged from writing only in an Ishnabe because it did not appear at the time to my wise instructors who meant well that it would be a good path to follow if you wanted to be published. Mm. So 
after a while, when I wanted to really stretch the boundaries of what I could write and how I could use the language, and I was much better with the language after having taught it longer, I just decided, you know, life is short. I just want to write first in this language because that language needs the attention. You just it needs the practice, and there's just things I can say in that language that I cannot say the same way in English. And there are many poets already writing in English, so I just try to focus on that now. Right, right. When was this poem written? I would say this one was written about two years ago. Uh, okay. One of the poems that, as we talked at the beginning, or we talked earlier about how you navigate regular life and use poetry to make that more meaningful. So whether you're moving between work and home or between different people you encounter in a day, or you're really sitting back and appreciating the world around you, or managing being frustrated with it or frightened by something, I think that writing poetry is, for me, a way to kind of recenter. Mm-hmm. And so I was really just sort of the everyday stress of the world kind of piles up and I think, wait, no, we can find balance in that. We can think about where we are. So I had written it for that reason. Okay, okay. Was there a specific incident that made you write this? I would say the exhaustion of being in higher ed. <laughs> so in higher education, you just are often struggling against funding issues and priorities where things are considered more valuable than others. Mm-hmm. I'm also in almost every setting on campus the only Anishinaabe person. Mm-hmm. Even if we have other native people, I mean, there's no one else on the campus that speaks the language. Mm-hmm. As I mentioned previously, there's an elementary school teacher in town that also speaks it. But in many instances, I will think the most useful way I could view a situation is through the lens of that language and some of the paradigms I might bring to the table as someone with an Anishinaabe or indigenous sensibility, and yet I'm very often the only one present. So it's just sort of, I think, the exhaustion of, of knowing, wait, no, no, I'm connected to this huge thing. I represent something that is much older than the city or, or structure or system that I'm working in, and yet it's often something that's hard to pull forward. Mm. Yeah, and I, I think we touched on it a little bit earlier in terms of despite the fact that there there are plenty of indigenous peoples around, the fact is when you're in a language department, often there's only one of you. <laughs> and it can be a lonely experience, and especially given all the pressures that's associated with ed- being in the education field, as you said, trying to balance finding the funding for continuing your work and also just trying to just be this as like an added uh, burden, knowing that whether or not you want to, <laughs> the fact is you are the representative for your nation. Yeah, I think that has happened a lot in America. We have made people representatives of something much bigger than anyone really wants to carry. I think it happens many, many times. You have the one woman who's asked to give a view, or the one Muslim that's asked to give a view, or the one, it could be anything. And we 
do this othering all the time to one another that is not helpful. And we need to take more time to actually get to know who we are as complex individuals and not try to say, well, I'm going to label you this way and that's what you represent. Right, right. And I think it, it just speaks to the overall underrepresentation of so many of the diverse cultures that make up the United States and all the indigenous nations that are still residing within this landmass. U.S. as a culture have, have this very fast pace. Obviously, again, this is something of a stereotype because it depends on where where you are in the u.s the pace will be different but the idea of the u.s is constantly renewing constantly searching for the new the better whatever you know pursuit of happiness is kind of in our in in the spirit of, of the country at the same time that fast pace doesn't really allow us to get to know especially when there is a lot of shame associated with digging into the past and digging even the present of how our culture continues to be the way it is. I would agree. Yeah, you're right. I can imagine it, it must be incredibly frustrating, as you said, to be the representation, to be foisted with this so much weight you know, to have the weight of an entire nation be on your shoulders in many walks of your life and not be able to just live as a, just a regular person any, like anyone else. And you feel like there's always some kind of line you have to toll. How do you combat that on an everyday basis, aside from writing poetry? I think there's ways where you just uh, go with the flow and, and blend in sometimes. I think that, again, just to compare, which I know isn't an exact comparison, but we have so many different people in the U.S. that represent so many different backgrounds. Some people are visibly labeled as representing that, and other people are not. So I often deal with students who don't look like what someone expects to be Indian, or native, even the term Indian is somewhat problematic, right? Mm. You would have someone who just wants to be recognized as Ojibwe, and they don't look the way people imagine a Native American should look, so they feel erased. And I do think sometimes, though, navigating that by just going with the flow is valid. So sometimes I think that's something people need to do. Then there are also times where people will say, no, I'm going to make a point now to explain to others what it means to be this mm. identity. What does this identity represent? And I think that is, you know, again, to go back to the Black Lives Matter movement, that's the same thing. I think you have people where they're given heightened visibility when they'd like to just be able to navigate the world without being labeled or called out or have some stereotypes. Um, and, and sometimes they do need to say, no, okay, we're black, and we have a voice, and it's a collective um, amount of experience, and we have something to say. All of those people that attend Black Lives protest are also just regular people at other times, and I think it's allowing people to go back and forth between those spaces that really is how I think folks manage to get through things. Yeah, yeah. 
at the same time, I, I feel like for people who visibly look or fit people's idea of what an indigenous person looks like, uh, sometimes it could be extra difficult, as you said, because we have so little representation of how that could manifest. People sort of gravitate toward those symbols and they grab onto them and they, again, voice this responsibility onto those people they think of as the quintessential indigenous person, not necessarily even an indigenous person of a certain nation, just an indigenous person. So I can play the game where I can recognize, or actually I'm less able now, to recognize Asian Americans from different countries just by facial feature. But that took years because I wasn't born in the U.S. So that took just years of kind of osmosis sort of learning. And that's why I'm less able to do that now because um, I've been living in the U.S. for more longer time than I have lived elsewhere. So it's interesting to hear you talk about the ability to recognize people from different nations. But that, again, takes a, a lot of immersion, many, many years of immersion, living amongst different indigenous peoples to be able to tell that difference just by facial feature or by dress. And again, because we've had this, U.S. has this history of corralling indigenous peoples into pockets, into geographical pockets, so obviously now people can live elsewhere. I think that would be something that's hard to come by, especially for somebody who is non-indigenous. Yeah, that's a good point, too, when you talk about recognizing people. For example, for me, not being a member of Asian American community, the only way that I often recognize whether someone is, say, Japanese or Chinese or Malaysian or Korean is I'll listen for the language. Mm. So I may not be able to speak those languages fluently, but there are overarching differences here. Mm-hmm. between the languages, the length of words, or random, you know, words that you might have learned. And I think that's one of the things with Native communities. If we maintain our languages, we maintain that other way of recognizing people. Like our word for relative is Benoe Magana, which mm-hmm. means someone who sounds like yeah. So it really isn't the physical features that we should be using to recognize someone anyway. It's the ontologies and the beliefs and the way they are practicing being in the world and the way they talk, that would be a more reliable way to recognize someone. And I guess that's probably another reason 
know we write poems. I don't know, do you feel like your background influences your poetry? Maybe the way I view my poetry and the way that I approach my poetry, I think it must have an influence. I find that a lot of mm, the symbolisms that I use are actually very embedded Western, you know, Greco-Roman imagery. And that, that is partly due to the, you know, despite the fact that I did not study the canon when I was in school, it still seeps through. Um, that sort of unconscious focus <laughs> uh, because of systemic uh, ways of gearing all of us towards that. Like what's quote unquote recognized as the height of Western civilization. Yeah, so I can't tell now. Like there's no finite delineation between where my influences are coming from is I guess uh, way of summing up that answer, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's interesting because it's, a, it's an Indo-European language. I mean, when we both write in English, we're ultimately using Indo-European roots and frames of reference and ways of forming words and thoughts. So maybe you're right, it does just through and referring to gender and putting a noun before a verb, those color how you create poetry, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I think I think so. I think that's probably why when scientists study people who uh, speak more than one language, they realize that it's very good for the brain because you have to use different logical systems to live in different language systems. Even within the same language system, just different languages. I think there is enough of a difference between different languages of the same language system that still requires your brain to connect to different parts. So I think it does really helps people to think differently, to, to source information differently, to view information differently, to view the world differently for people who are trained in more than one language. So I think it's similar when you're talking about cultural diversity, cultural upbringing as well. A lot of my students who are not necessarily planning to be poets or writers, but the reason they take the language is because they were not raised speaking their own indigenous language, and they feel that, or they, you know, they not just a feeling, they correctly know that being able to describe the world around them the way their ancestors did will help them better understand some of the ways their ancestors thought about the space and thought about life. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's true. And while you were saying that, it also kind of made me think of how sometimes I, I do write in different languages, and sometimes when I'm out about uh, being influenced by the parts of the world that that inspire me to write, sometimes that writing comes in a different language. And now I wonder from what you're saying if it's because again, the feeling that that particular language is much more suited to describing what I feel at that moment, similarly for you as well. 
rather than in English, our dominant language writing. It is always interesting to kind of look back and look at our our own practice within different languages and see the instances where you feel driven to write in one particular language as opposed to another. And because you you had uh, sent me this poem of yours uh, on balance, and I had written that as well in various ways, I have sent you one of my poems, which is called Balance. So I, I'm going to read that and we can talk about it. The Santa Ana's howl with the voices of the suppressed, roaring to accompany flickering hands seeking to balance the scale, teetering lopsided, weighted down by the influence of the corrupt, and pry open eyes shut tight against reality. With a patience spanning millennia, she will watch time sweep incremental winnings to her side mounting over a higher in grandeur, though she cares not for their weight. Thus the balance shifts in minute movements until it will once again attain equilibrium. I really like the, um, I read it before, I like the way that you had small things and enormous things put together in, in the poem. So from Santa Anna's, which is almost so big you can't imagine what is the shape and weight of that. And it has such big impact to minute movement. So it was really fun to hear you read it, too. Thank you. I've never read it out loud before, so it's also an interesting experience. And having heard you talk about your poem made me realize that that shares Again, this idea of balancing different things, very different things that you, you were trying to express as well with your poem. I had almost the same question that you had asked me. Was there a particular event? Was there one moment that this poem came out of? Or was it an experience that spanned a large amount of time? If memory serves, I think I wrote this poem the immediate trigger was an article about the Santa Anas. And the longer term trigger was more the assault that I had experienced and also the collusion afterwards, which sort of leads me to where I am now and this living situation that I am in now. Do you think of the Santa Anas as a positive or negative for I think this one, it takes on a spiritual quality, and I don't mean like godlike, but more the carrier of voices of those who have been victimized. Because I think there is some mythologies that assign reasons for various natural phenomena. And in a way, I'm writing a mythology within this short poem. Uh, my name is Wonderfully 
sources of energy and power for humans. But I know that the dominant metaphor whenever you hear a weather report is anything other than bright, still, middle-range day is frightening. So too much rain, too much snow, too much wind, too much anything is often viewed as a negative thing. So I was just curious how you felt. My other question, too, is, was in what way do you think your curiosity about meteorology or science or just the, the planet has its own being with you know, systems and circulation and whatever? What way do you think science influences your writing? I think a lot. And I want to go back to your previous observation also, but just like the short answer for the science question is it has a lot of bearing on my writing because partly um, I tend to write a lot in reaction to what I read and I read a lot of news that covers various topics including science discoveries and uh, different branches of science. As I send you in the other poem, the sun takes on a ne negative role, but I've written it as a positive and as a negative. And I think one of the privilege of being human and having this language, the languages that we have to describe things in poetry, is that we have the privilege to assign roles to our surroundings, however that suit us, uh, our feelings at the moment. And I wonder if how we react to weather or how people react to weather differently is also influenced by whatever culture that dominates their purview as well. Because I think the Western way of looking at weather or nature in general is something not only outside of ourselves, but it's something that we need to have dominance over. And I think in that uh, is one of the reasons why we think of anything, and weather included, that is outside of our control as something that's bad. We assign this negative role to it. Even if we talk about sins, they tend to be things that are not within our control, excess. Yeah, I think you're right. That's a very good point. I mean, I think knowing the ways that we navigate what others might do to harm us can sometimes make us see everything else in the world through that lens of potentially harmful. So it's important we have systems and safe places for people to think differently about what they can't control so that they can restore their sense of Security, because you're right, if you're always imagining everything around you might harm you, and that, you know, that's, I think, where we get some of these ideas. So Western society must have been reacting to feeling very afraid all the time. And, and that's a valid thing, to be afraid and need to be in a safe place, but hopefully we someday evolve to living more peacefully on the earth and recognizing what we can't control. Um, because certainly we're still at a point where Humans are harmful enough to each other, so I think that relates to another thing with your poem. You were talking about the image of sweeping incremental win winnings to the side. I was wondering if you would talk a little bit more about that line. Do you think that that was a gesture of frustration or impatience 
or was it something where the person's team, the winnings to decide was, you know, delighted that they won? I just saw that line having so much potential. I thought I would ask if you would talk about that one a bit more. Thank you. I think it's my trying to convince myself that justice will take time to realize because of the fact that I had experienced injustice in a way that was shocking to me, living in a country where I thought that sort of injustice would not happen, which also, you know, speaking of within the what's happening currently, also made me realize that I haven't quite sheltered uh, in my life to not have experienced it to the extent that many others have experienced that aspect of life. I think it also speaks to the sense that I feel like our world is off kilter in many ways. And I mean, that's part of why I have written this. In many ways, this particular poem is much more personal than some of my other poems, which tries to talk more in terms of the systems that we live in. One of the things about not agreeing on what is unjust, especially in the incremental, like the minute detail sense, is that we just, we are different. You know, going back to that, we are individuals at the end of the day, no matter how strong or weak our, our links are to the people surrounding us, or our culture, our society, our, our peoples, whatever that, that means whatever shape that takes on. And because we are individuals at the end of the day, we react to the world the way we see it. And so everybody will have a limitation in the sense that they can't see everything. They can't personally experience every injustice or justice. So we all bring to the table, we are basically all little pieces of a very large puzzle and if we can't find some kind of way to come together to at least give our own peace, then the puzzle is not solvable. I think a lot more people realize that we are part of a much larger whole that may be coming together and working in tandem with each other, even if we don't agree exactly on the what that is wrong or even the exact solution of what is wrong. But if we all maybe at least lend each other our years and time that we can have a better understanding towards just what's wrong, you know? Yeah, I would agree. I think that's very true. I don't see things the same way and 
aren't comfortable allowing all the different views to add up to be one. We somehow, as humans, have the sense we must smooth them all out, or one must dominate, or we need to line them up in hierarchies. There must be something about the human cognitions. So I'm not sure, but I think you're onto something in the way you describe it. Thank you. Yeah, and, and I think, again, this idea of balance that both of our poems bring is obviously for our own personal worlds and for the larger society in general, because we can't, I mean, for a period, I think depending on how privileged one is, we can, even in an off-kilter world, to live a balanced personal life. At the same time, the chances of that lasting become slimmer and slimmer the more the outer world becomes chaotic and unbalanced. That the fact is it's always to our benefit to be looking out for others as well because ultimately it will benefit us. Yeah, that is true. Yeah, if there is a benefit in having a relation to others, I feel like that's part of, you know, for us traditionally, the plan system or recognizing the rights of non-humans. It really is important that we see those who are not like us and understand our dependence on their own health, even if they aren't directly impacting our lives in a way that is obvious to us. Mm. Just their very ability to exist in the same system is part of our own well-being, usually. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think... And people in general now, especially those who are, are you know, aware and of, of different ways of living, interacting with the world, are recognizing that we can take the positives um, or learn from the positives from other ways of interacting with the world and not try to continue with a system that's obviously not working, a system that looks at non-humans as somehow inferior of somehow only existing at our service. Right. Not everything is a resource to us. It might be that we are a resource to others, I think. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's, that's a thought that certain belief systems have a hard time letting come through in the way that those systems allow life to be lived. I remember when when our glorious leader decided that he needed to have a photo op with a Bible, I remember one religious figure who's a CNN contributor has said, have you ever seen the Bible used in such a sort of like distorted way? And I was thinking, uh, yes, because, you know. Yes, many times, right? Yes. So interesting. Yeah, how did we get to a world where we were lulled to such a sense of complacency as Americans, but it was assumed democracy could not be disrupted? I think that's always a question. Or we thought that the inequalities of the so-called American dream would not mean necessarily, if everyone has the opportunity to be at the top, by definition, there are a lot of people at the bottom. How we didn't realize that, I have no idea. By we, I mean very loosely, people who vote in America. Native folks, our citizens in their own nation and, and the U.S., and 
Right. A lot of these people would say there's, you know, one system. But many tribal nations have just as many challenges politically. Right, right. Yeah, I, I think one of the problems that we have as these human beings is that we have these idealized uh, systems that we put into place over many, many you know, generations that really takes in very little account of actual human behavior. Yes, that's true. <laughs> and I, I actually feel like the Constitution of the U.S., the framers, despite how privileged they were in their own ways, that they did actually incorporate a lot of safeguards in terms of safeguarding against this human nature. At the same time, I think think in the culture that they lived in or in the world that they traveled in, they did not foresee the possibility, A, of erosion over decades, and B, of just such outrageous behavior becoming the norm. Yeah, I think that's true. So a lot of people have written about the early American democracy being modeled on the Iroquois Confederacy. Laws, mm. the notion of there being checks and balances, and House and Senate, and the way bills are passed, a lot of that people trace back to the Haudenosaunee system. But in that Haudenosaunee system, there was a shared sense of ethnic and a shared cultural baseline mm -hmm. that I think America's democracy has intentionally and idealistically thought they didn't. Yeah, I, I think when looking at best practices, as the corporate lingo will have that's used, of different yeah. systems, we need to look at how those best practices become best practices partly because of the systems that they live in and not just try to pick those out and fit into another system and thinking that somehow that wholesale transfer is just going to work because it, it doesn't. Again, it comes down to the lack of nuanced understanding of how something that looks might look amazing on paper, whose existence is only possible within a certain system. Yeah, I think that's true. Definitely think that is true. And I guess maybe that is another piece in your poem that I like, the, the patience and the, the millennia having to wait, having to be observant about what's going on in order to assess what to do and how to respond. Yeah. The, Point that you made in a poem, I think. Yeah, and I think some sometimes you know we talk about patience when we have no other choice, and I think that is as much as I value patience, I also feel like we as humans, because we live, we're not trees. We don't we don't have that lifespan to wait for the millennia, even though I talk about it in the poem. And this idea of sort of bending the arc of justice toward what we want is constant work 
I mean, even within the poem itself, you know, um, we were talking about incremental changes. It's really just difficult as human beings to wait it out, partly because of the shortness of our own lives. Yeah, that's true. We have a very small life in the big span, you know, big scheme of things, and we don't always remember that. Compared to a redwood, we're not much. No, no, we're not. We're not compared to mountains, compared to many more other larger natural systems that we take part and we live with. And the elements that are mentioned in your poem, those tend to be, though they're moving, they're living, they live much longer. And I think to them, it's not necessarily patience because they, they use a different clock than we do. I think that's that's one of the things about human beings is that in some ways we rush because we have to. I think we can we can just continue on and, and just keep talking about like both of our poems and how they sit within the larger systems of life and how, you know, despite the fact that they are just like vignettes into both our own lives and, and the larger worlds that we occupy. Again, it comes back to the, the sense of time, ironically enough. So to, to wrap up, I would love for you to tell us if you are going to other virtual readings, if there are regular ones that you would recommend, and also how the listeners might follow you. I think the best thing to say is that I run a website called ojibwe.net. Spell that O J I B w.net and we have created a site there for students and speakers who have been using the language for a long time to get together and, and be creative and save songs and stories and poetry lessons things that help us keep the language going so i have a facebook and an instagram account connected to that so if people are curious they can find us at ojibwe.net but my newer book, Kijikijikaneshi, depend on is through Wayne State University Press. And they've had a number of interesting events and readings. So checking in with them occasionally is good as well. I think it's been really rewarding to meet people like you who have made the best of some really difficult times and not stop reading poetry or talking to poets and processing poetry. So I really appreciate it being part of Poets and Muses, and I hope that you continue it for many, many more episodes. Yes, me too. I, I really appreciate you being a listener and now also being a participant of making this happen. It's been wonderful, I think, incredibly enriching experience for myself, uh, hopefully as well as for the listeners, um, just to find poets from all parts of the world and life, you know, willing to share their personal story that makes their poetry possible. So thank you again for your time. I really, really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Have a really good rest of the week and may you survive the season and we all come out on the other end. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Same to you. As always, you can find us at poetsandmuses.com as well as on Instagram and Twitter under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter at poetsandmuses.com. Now, in addition to the Poets and Muses website and SoundCloud page, you can also listen to the Poets and Muses podcast on your preferred podcast platforms. 
I'm your host, Imogen A-Rate. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you have a safe and healthy week, and I look forward to bringing you another episode next Sunday.